Good morning and welcome. Thank you to Tony and Nate for preparing our hearts for worship today. Hallelujah. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is Jesus of all of our praise that we can offer him this morning because of his great love for us, demonstrated most gloriously at the cross. Let's stand together for our call to worship today. I'm going to ask us to speak responsively a common refrain from the Bible. That refrain is, his steadfast love endures forever. So if I say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, you will say, his steadfast love endures forever. So this is from Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, let our congregation say, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his triumph day by day. Declare his glory, declare his glory to the nations. Great is the Lord and worthy of all praise. Glory and majesty attend him. Declare his glory. Glory to the nations. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his triumph day by day. Declare his glory. Declare his glory to the nations. Great is the Lord of all praise, glory and majesty attend him, declare his glory, declare his glory, declare his glory to the nations. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his triumph day by day. Declare his glory, declare his glory to the nations. Great is the Lord and worthy of all praise. Glory Declare his glory to the nations. 
from the ends of the earth, from the depths of the sea, from the heights of the heavens, your name be praised, from the hearts of the weak, from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all people, this song we raise, Lord, throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in every nation, sovereign of all Lord most high be magnified from the ends of the earth from the depths of the sea from the heights of the heavens your name be praised from the hearts of the weak from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all people, this song we raise, Lord, throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in Sovereign of all creation, Lord Most High, be magnified. You may be seated. At this time, we want to hear from each other from our church family around us, a little mini testimony time. And the question to answer is, how has Jesus changed your life? Maybe there's a simple answer or an event at which he did something special. But we would love to hear from you. We heard from the baptism testimony last week, and that was so special. And so a moment, just you can say one sentence, how has Jesus changed your life? And raise up your voice, and then I will repeat it for everyone to hear. Took away my bitterness. Thank you. Praise God. Completely. Say it again. Completely. Completely. <laughs> yes. I thank him for his boldness. Healing, help, yes. He's given us joy. 
by Dr. Payne next because of Christ. What is it that he's given us? And one of the things the song talks about is that uh, we can go into his presence with assurance from Hebrews. So let's stand together and continue. Because of Christ, because of Christ, and our faith in Him, we can come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of His glad welcome. Because of Christ, because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of His glad welcome. Because of Christ, because of Christ and our faith. into God's presence assured of His glad welcome because of Christ Assured of His glad welcome Because of Christ Because of Christ Wonderful grace of Jesus Greater than all my sin How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden Setting my spirit free For the wonderful grace of Jesus Reaches me Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, singing, greater by than all my sin and shame, my sin and shame, all magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise His name.
grace of Jesus reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, singing, greater far than all my sin and shame, my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise His name. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Reaching the most defiled By its transforming power Making him God's dear child Purchasing peace and heaven For all eternity For the wonderful grace of Jesus Reaches me Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgression, singing, greater by than all my sin and shame, my sin and shame, oh magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise His name. Go to the person next to you and wish them the peace of Christ be with you and have a seat. the ushers to the front and uh, we're going to take a moment to continue in our worship as we worship through giving, giving back to the Lord uh, the blessings that he has given to us. There's several ways you can do that. You can do that through the, uh, the plates that are going to be passed here in a moment or you can give online at wheatonbible.org slash give. Or you can always drop offering in the back, there's boxes, or you can mail it to the church offices. So I want to invite the ushers to start passing the plates. As they do that, 
I want to recognize that this Tuesday, we will be celebrating July 4th. We're going to be celebrating as a nation this independence that took place for, for our country. And as a church, we believe in the, the priority of community and the pursuit of the common good in our community and in our nation where God has placed us. And I hope this morning as we gather here, you have uh, the thought comes into your mind that we are blessed to be in the nation that we are in, that we can come and gather and worship together, knowing that there's many places in our world that don't get this opportunity. So we praise God for that. Yeah. I also wanted us to draw our attention towards, as Christians, we know that this is not our primary home. We're not home yet. And so as we think about that, we think that our citizenship isn't in a country, it is actually in a kingdom. It's in the kingdom of God. And so our ultimate allegiance is with King Jesus and not in a system of government. And so as we think about that, we praise God and we love our country. But as citizens of heaven, we continue to pray for our country because we know that this is a fallen world. And so this July 4th, uh, my prayer is that we as a church would uh, celebrate and pray that God's kingdom would advance here in our country. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we gather as a family here and we pray for our nation. And we come and we know that we are part of a fallen country. You have blessed it in so many ways. But because of our sin, Lord, we know that you still have much work to do here. And so I pray for our leaders, for our government leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that they would be convicted by your gospel truth, and that that would run their moral values and how they lead this country. We praise you that we can gather freely, that we can walk in without any fear that the government would shut this place down. And we pray that we would give all of our future to you and that we would not put our hope in a president, in a cabinet, in any court system, but that we would put our hope in you as the risen king of our lives. And so we thank you for where you have put us and I ask that you would empower us to go from this place to share your gospel truth, the truth that, that saves us in every circumstance. And so as we gather here, Lord, I pray that your word would, would fill our minds 
that we would hear your word read and that we would see what you want to do in our lives. Thank you for this place. It's your name I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here because we are a church that seeks to be faithful to the scriptures. Before we sit under the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading can be found in Matthew 23. Uh, In your journals, that's on page 130 and 131, and it is a longer passage, so I'm just warning you. This is God's word for us this morning, church. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, Well, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, you build tombs for the prophets and, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you were the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? We awake? All right. Well, my name's Phil Shields. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, so great to be with you this morning. If you are new here checking us out, I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us on this rainy morning. Um, if you're watching online, so glad that you're with us here this morning. We're a congregation that is desiring and pursuing and learning how to love God, love one another, love our neighbors, and love the nations well. We do that by really considering that the word of God is uh, useful for everything in life and that it's going to mold us and mold our thinking and our actions. And so we want to dive into that this morning. And so as Eric said, we are in Matthew 23 this morning. And uh, I hope you just uh, finished reading that with Eric and thought, man, this is the most joyful piece of scripture I have ever read in my life. For some reason, Hannibal decided that this would be the most joyful thing to, to look at with me and have Eric read it. So we get this like super judgmental text that we're going to go through here this morning. So I want to ask you, have you ever heard of the better than average effect? I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's a part of you. See, the better than average effect is basically this tendency for people to perceive that their abilities and their attributes, their personality traits are superior compared with the average peer. Now, what does that mean? See, you and I, when we get together, when we're around other people, 
The thought that goes through our mind is that we are better than those sitting next to us. That we're better than most people in the room. In fact, what is a part of us is that you and I think we are better than those that might even be in our own family that you're sitting next to right now. See, we look at ourselves and we think, well, I'm better at driving. I'm better at my job. I'm better at relationships than so-and-so. Or I'm, I'm better at doing this task. I'm better at work. I'm actually a better parent than them. And we continue to go on and on and we, we look around us and we think, okay, I am better than the average person next to me. What's funny is that when you think about this with yourself, the funny part is the person next to you is actually thinking the same thing compared to you. It's the better than average effect. And when you look at the better than average effect, it's a part of our DNA and it started to become a part of us all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. When sin entered this world. And so the week before the crucifixion, Jesus brings this incredibly harsh warning because that effect impacts every person in the world. It impacts your awareness that you actually need a savior. It impacts your awareness that you might be looking at yourself as your savior. And so the better than average effect impacts us. And what Eric read for us here just a moment ago, what we find is that this is taking place, Matthew 23 is taking place on the Tuesday before the crucifixion. And Jesus takes the first 12 verses of the text and he talks to the crowd that is present and to his 12 disciples. And then he takes the rest of the chapter to talk to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. In fact, many scholars believe that this chapter is the harshest text in all of scripture. Fun, huh? So when we look at this, what we have to understand is that we can't read Matthew 23 and think, oh, Jesus just lost his temper. We can't look at it that way. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is angry. When we read this text, we have to understand that Jesus is angry. But what we see is that there is a Savior who is actually experiencing sorrow that his people and his leaders of his chosen people were blinded by their sin and not seeing the truth that he is the Messiah. That he is king. And so my prayer is, is that this morning we would look at this text and we wouldn't miss the reality that King Jesus has come to save us and to rescue us. Now, what's interesting is I believe that whenever we look through this chapter, what we're going to see is that there is a a main principle that kind of uh, like threads its way through the entire chapter, and it's simply this. The warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace. 
See, the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace because we have a problem known as the better than average effect. We either think we can take care of ourselves or we compare ourselves to everyone else. Now, we're going to look at this through three stages. We're going to first look at Jesus' warning, and then we're going to look at Jesus' woes, and then we're going to look at Jesus' call. So let's look at Jesus' warning first. Matthew 23, look at the text. It it begins with him talking to the crowd and the 12 disciples. And the first 12 verses actually reveal Jesus' heart for the people because what is happening in this text is that his heart is that he wants them to understand the truth of God. That everything that took place in the Old Testament, all the prophecies have come and they have come true in him as the person, the Messiah. And so what he does is because his heart and his love is for the people, he's going to give a warning. Now often we don't think that warnings are loving Sometimes we think warnings are kind of rude and against us. But when you think about it, when you have a child and you give them a warning not to touch that hot stove, that is a warning of love and care. And so Jesus comes and and he brings this warning to the people about the scribes and, and Pharisees who are supposed to be teaching the truth to them but they don't even understand the truth themselves. So look at verse two. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now this, you might be going, well, what's the big deal with this verse? If you notice, uh, Jesus refers to this and, and we have to look back into the Old Testament of what is he referring to? What is Moses' seat? And what we find is that there was an actual chair that was set up in the synagogue. And that chair represented the teaching authority of every successor of Moses since Moses' day. That they would sit on that chair and they were the interpreters of the Torah first five books of the Bible. And so they had this authority to kind of rule over. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 17. So Jesus is taking this this, uh, symbol and he is pointing back to the Old Testament and he's saying they sit in Moses' seat. The Greek actually reads that on Moses' seat sat the scribes and Pharisees. And so the suggestion that Jesus is making is that these men, these scribes and Pharisees, actually placed themselves on Moses' seat and saw themselves as the people that placed themselves there. God didn't do it. They did the hard work. They did everything. They worked for them to be in this place. And they are claiming to be heirs of Moses. And so we have to ask, did God appoint these men? Now, when we look at this, we have to start realizing what is happening with the religious leaders. These these men that are to, to care for the people and to lead the people. See, if you see yourself as putting yourself in an influential and holy position, 
then you are going to live it out from a selfish seat. You're going to then uh, not just be grateful for being, not being grateful in, to be in that spot, but you are going to oppress those in those spots because everything about you being on that seat has to do with you and no one else. These leaders were missing a grace-filled perspective. They focused on a works-based perspective. So Jesus addresses these leaders and he's addressing their lives and their actions and how they are holding their position over the people that they are called to serve. And so he goes on in verses three and four. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, we see this warning that he is giving. Do what they teach, but not how they live. Whenever we look at this, it might be confusing because as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we also see different places where Jesus comes and he starts to criticize the teaching of the teachers. So why is Jesus now saying this? Why is he saying, do what they say, but not what they do? Well, that can be confusing if he's been criticizing them earlier. And whenever you look at the commentators, so the commentators believe that uh, Jesus is now speaking from a tongue-in-cheek perspective. Sarcasm is in coming out in some way. And so he's saying, you can do what they say, but... And so the warning is that they don't even follow what they say. So why should you? See, they talk a good talk, but they walk an awful walk. They ignore the teaching of the Torah. They create these heavy burdens for the, the people. This is where we see that legalism starts to come in. They start to create this legalistic society, this legalistic religion. And so they are harder on the people than they are on their own selves. Now remember, even to this day, religious leaders are supposed to be there to serve others. They're supposed to be Helpful. They're not supposed to be people that are putting heavy burdens on others. And so they lived directly opposite of the purpose of our Savior. When you think about Jesus, that's not, he didn't live the way that the Pharisees lived. See, this is where we have to understand that when obedience is based on legalism, Christianity becomes oppressive. When, when your obedience is based on legalism, your Christianity becomes very oppressive. Think about it for a second. 
We've actually already studied a scene where Jesus teaches what this faith that he is bringing into existence is all about. In Matthew 11, this is the, the words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, that, those verses are not the same verses that the religious leaders could use. They were putting very hard things upon the people. And so Jesus gives this warning. And not only does he give the warning, but if you look at the text, he ends up saying, well, this is why the, the leaders are doing this. This is the true desires of, of their heart. And you find that in verses 5 through 7. It starts with everything they do is done for people to see. Everything that they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. When was the last time you actually thought that you would hear a sermon and the word phylacteries in it? They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. See, the desire of their heart, their pridefulness was that other people would see them as holy and great leaders. And so they see their deeds, the deeds that they are doing, that they think that they're doing them for God, that they are necessary. They're working out their salvation instead of understanding that Jesus, the Messiah, has come to bring grace into existence and to show us what grace is all about. And they're telling the people, this is how you should live. And so they make their phylacteries wide and broad. Well, what are those? Well, if you go back to um, and were to apply the text of Exodus 13.9 and Deuteronomy 6, you would find that phylacteries are these little leather boxes that carry texts from the Torah in it. So they would put these in and they were to bind them to them. And so there were times that they would be on their head and times that they're on their arm. And so they would wear these around. And what's happening is instead of them being small leather boxes, they started to grow. I mean, the bigger the box, the more text they should have in there. You know, the bigger the box, the holier that they must be. The text goes on that the, the Jewish leaders would wear these shawl-like pieces of fabric around their shoulders and it would, it would go down and at the end of the fabric would be these tassels. And the tassels were there to remind the people, to remind them to follow the law of God, to obey the law. But over time, these religious leaders started to make the tassels longer and longer and longer because the longer the tassel, the most holy the person. 
I guess we could look at it this way. Uh, whoever has walked in here with the biggest Bible is the most holy person, right? Not at all. See, they were creating things that they were trying to make themselves look holier and look wiser so that others saw them. The text also says that they, they loved places of honor and so they would be invited to meals and they loved sitting at the head table. They loved mixing with the rich and the, the influential in society. They would, they would sit there and that's what they would want. It says that they wanted the best seats in the synagogue. And what's interesting is in the synagogue, there would be these seats for the people to come in so that they could hear the word of God. What God had told them through the law. And those seats were for these people to come in. And what ends up happening is that the Pharisees and scribes take those seats. So the further and further back, the average people were put. So they couldn't hear what was being said. They couldn't hear what was being taught. And things were getting absolutely distorted. But, but the people would look and see, well, that's where the wisest and the most holy people were sitting. Now, why is Jesus pointing this out? Why is he giving this warning to his 12 and to the crowd? It's because when the pride of the religious leader, the, the pride of their heart is driving them to act in this way, the natural thing for the people is to go, well, that's the right way. That's the way that we're supposed to live. That's what we're supposed to desire. And Jesus is saying, not at all. That is not the way this is supposed to go. He's saying, don't follow them for the true way of life, but following me as the Messiah is the way of salvation. And so Jesus ends this, these first 12 verses, this section, by telling them not to call men rabbi or father or instructor or teacher. He's saying, don't do that. Now that might sound weird, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't call our dad, dad. It's not like that. But what Jesus is doing is he's watching these people follow them. And he's saying, don't put any man in the place that the Messiah is supposed to be. Now, get this. Jesus was a rabbi. <laughs> Jesus was a, a father, a spiritual father to 12. Jesus was an instructor. And he's saying, spiritual leaders should not seek Titles shouldn't seek these things and, and those following them shouldn't give those titles to them. So to put it simply, it, it could be like this. I shouldn't do what I do to receive the title pastor. That's not the purpose for why I do what I do. Simply speaking, those men shouldn't be uh, wanting to be this religious leader so they get this title. 
And what ends up happening is you have to look at what does Jesus do with the 12 disciples? Well, he instructs them on how to teach. Remember, he's going to be leaving, and so he is instructing the 12 how to teach and and the truth to teach. And he even gives them practice and sends them out at different times uh, throughout the land. And they go, and they're, they're talking to people, and they're teaching about how Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is going to leave and he wants to make sure that, he, that these 12 understand you don't seek titles, you seek the gospel, you seek the Messiah and you teach that to others. Who cares what the titles are? And what he ends up doing is he makes them all equal. They're all brothers. Not one is greater than the other. It's about setting up a humble faith coming from a humble leader so all te- all disciples have one teacher king jesus and jesus is saying be humble humble yourself in your confession of sin and your sinful ways and declare your weakness because when you declare your weakness and you seek guidance from god That's when you will be exalted. And so Jesus is correcting this whole false sense of titles and honor simply because if disciples avoid sinful pride, usually all other problems tend to fall away. Friends, I I would imagine that the simple issues in your life and my life come from a sense of pride, a foundation of pride. And if we would humble ourselves and declare our weakness and our need for grace, those sinful issues will start to fall away. You and I worship a humble Messiah And we have to remember that the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace because we have the tendency to have the same pride that the Pharisees and scribes had. So Jesus gives this warning and then uh, Jesus goes into these, uh, these woes. And we find this in verses 13 through 36, and we're not going to read through all of those, but what we see is that Jesus has a lot to say, but the audience is changing now. So it goes from the crowd and the 12, and now he is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees directly. One of my favorite books that I've read several times is the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've read it several times. Maybe you're not a reader and so you watch the movie and I got to tell you that's not the way to go. You got to read the book. And I'm not going to spoil it for you if you never read it. I know Hannibal would spoil it for you, but I'm not going to do that. But I am going to share one of the scenes. It's one of my favorite scenes that has ever been written in any book actually. The kids uh, enter Narnia and um, they get there and they meet this incredible couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. 
And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to them and they end up telling the, the four children that Aslan is a lion. Now think about this. If you are leaving London by going through a wardrobe and you hear that Aslan, this Christ-like figure, is a lion, it's going to freak you out a little bit. And so the, the kids start asking questions. And so Susan asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver then shares, That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. I tell you. That is, when I read that for the first time, that scene has stuck in my head over and over again. Jesus isn't safe. But he's good and he is king. And because he is king, he brings these woes to these scribes and these Pharisees because the people that he is to guide are being foolish. And we see this, this come through and he uses two terms over and over again, woe and hypocrite. In fact, as, as Eric was reading this out loud to us, I started to feel a little like, ugh, this is not feeling good. Woe and hypocrite. Woe is basically another warning. It, it's the time that, that Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm going to warn these leaders and I'm going to rebuke them that the, and condemn them for the evil that is present. But in the word woe, you also find mourning. He's mourning over his chosen people and how it's going. And so when he uses the term woe, you have to read it and go, there is grief and there is sorrow that is pouring over Jesus. And he has this over the consequences of what the leaders have done. And then there's this term hypocrite. A hypocrite is a little different in the Gospels. See, the religious leaders at times, they're guilty uh, of uh, deliberate deceit. But what you most often find, if you go back and you start reading through Matthew again, what you're going to find is they seem to deceive themselves. And when they deceive themselves, they in turn then start to deceive others without even knowing it. In fact, in verse 13, the text could say, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, sincere hypocrites. <laughs> they just don't get it. So who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, here's, here's who the scribes were. The scribes were the teachers of the law. And they were the interpretive experts of the Torah, um, the first five books of the Bible. And so they would interpret that. Now, the Pharisees were another religious group uh, of leaders. And they were these uh, theological experts about who God is. And so these are two separate groups. And, and the Jews heavily depended on them to teach and to merge basically God and law together with everyday life. 
And so Jesus then states in verse 13 that these groups, these religious leaders, don't even enter the kingdom of heaven themselves. And they don't even allow others to enter. See, the the Pharisees, uh, what we're going to see is that the worst way that they do this is by condemning and judging and approving the murder of Jesus. And what's amazing with them is that they believe that God has given a covenant and a law that allow them to teach people to work out their salvation if they choose to follow the right path. Not that grace will come. And so Jesus is telling them, you have great passion, but you just don't have the right knowledge. Then in verse 15, Jesus cries out again with another woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus cries out again, and what we find is that in the first century, missionary activity by the Jews were growing, and so the Pharisees worked to win over converts uh, to their practices. But notice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you are promoting a false religion, so anyone who follows it is entering already doomed. It it doesn't work for them, because what they taught left no room for Jesus. So let me ask you, the way you live, the way you think, does it leave any room for Jesus? Is your life focusing on him as the Messiah or some rules that you must follow? See, they're not just wrong. They're infecting wrong. I read that during the bubonic plague, English doctors told the people to leave the city of London to go out to the countryside to to get air and, and that they would be okay. What ended up happening is the people left the city and they went out, but they, instead of getting better, they started to infect the whole nation, one person by one person by one person by one person. That's exactly what's happening here. The Pharisees are doing the same thing. They go out thinking that this work that they're doing as a missionary is good, but they are infecting the next person. Jesus goes on then, verses 16 through 24, and In those verses, he's rebuking them for majoring on the minor things. Like these simple things. And I think in modern day uh, setting, it could be instead of worrying if the truth of God is being preached, we worry about the color of the carpet. I mean, Jesus is saying, like, you have built up your whole system of oaths, buildings, tithing, and legalism, and it's all messed up. And he declares that what God loves most is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now he's not saying that tithing and and oaths aren't important, but one is more important than the other, and justice and mercy and faithfulness is more important. But prideful hearts push that away. He goes on then 
in verses 25 through 28. And this is one where we can kind of go, well, I know what he's talking about. He starts talking about outward appearances. Now, here's what's interesting. The word hypocrite is used 14 times in the New Testament. 14 times. 12 of those times are in the book of Matthew. And six of those times are in this exact text that we are reading. These hypocrites focus on the outside of their lives and they forget the inner soul. And so Jesus uses the image of the cup and the dish and you might be going, well, I get it because if you don't clean the inside, it's going to be filthy. But what's this whole thing about whitewashed tombs? And so Jesus is saying, you take such care of of the tombs where they, they lay and you, you decorate them and you paint them. And you do that so that if, if somebody's walking by, they don't walk over a tomb because if they were to walk over a tomb, that would declare them to be unclean. But what the people are doing is they're decorating this up and they're so worried about the outside and not understanding what's taking place He's beckoning them to assess themselves. And so he beckons us to do the same thing. Is your inner soul getting as much attention as you give to how you look on the outside? Let me tell you, you look good today. But is your inner soul getting that much attention? And then Jesus goes on, verses 29 through 36, and he starts giving this warning to the leaders about unbelief. And, and he talks about the first martyr of Abel, and he goes to the last martyr of the Hebrew canon of Zechariah, and he says that throughout this whole time, there has been unbelief taking place. And so he says, woe to you. And he's saying those that are supposed to have this incredible beliefs and faith system, they don't have it. And they're lost. Now, Jesus has gone through all these rebukes. And I got to ask you, do you remember who he's talking to? The religious. He's passing judgment on those who attended church regularly who worshiped weekly, who went out as missionaries, who made religious commitments, who gave money, who worked to observe God's law each hour of the day, and they built beautiful structures for the God of Israel. These are the people that you would think would be stepping into the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says no. And why? It's because they are hypocrites. They don't see Jesus as the servant son of God who is the Messiah. And their rejection of him means they miss out on the surrender to the grace that Jesus brought. See, his words aren't safe. But his words offer grace. And we must see that his warnings are good. So we have Jesus' warning and we have Jesus' woes and that leads to Jesus' call. We see then this in verses 37 through 39. There, 
Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These verses are full of deep sorrow and compassion. These verses are mourning what's taking place. And what Jesus is saying here is he's clear that Israel has chosen its fate through the killing and stoning of prophets and eventually the killing of the Messiah. Yet he also reveals his covenant love. Notice what he says, I have longed to gather your children. The literal explanation of that verse is, I wanted you, but you didn't want me. I was uh, in Florida this past week and uh, with my daughter, and so we were there, and I watched as this mother duck was walking, and all these little ducklings had their uh, little legs going as fast as they could, and they were following her. And, and I realized, like, those ducklings, they're not super smart like mom yet. And so she would like turn and watch and she would do all these things. And those ducklings didn't do anything to receive her guidance and her care. But she still cared for them. Jesus in this leaves every other representation that he's ever used and he moves towards mothering. And he wants to gather the, the little chicks to have the protection of the mother's wings. The mother is an image of grace. And Jesus is saying this is the last time. It's the last time that he's going to address the crowds and give them the opportunity to surrender to truth. And when we read Matthew 23, we have to understand that this is an opportunity for repentance. Yeah, it's a warning, it's judgment, it's harsh. But when you read it and you think about everything previously in the Gospel of Matthew, you have to go, isn't Jesus' patience and goodness amazing with these people? And isn't Jesus' patience and goodness amazing for you and me? See, the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace. That grace is represented at a table. The table is a reminder that Jesus came and he gathers those who see him as king of their life. And he says, come and remember. Remember. These elements remind us of a broken body and of shed blood. And like the leaders, our sinful pride wants to control us. But Jesus says this table is a reminder that he has overcome all of it. 
And so Matthew 23 urges us that if we haven't surrendered to Jesus and see him as the king of glory, that we must do that. And if we've done that, that we are to proclaim Jesus through our faith and obedience and through our life. And so this is a table of remembrance that the life and death of Jesus was costly. That it brought a lot of pain, but it was a life that was given for you and for me to understand that his grace is beautiful and that in our weakness, we will be exalted as a child of the kingdom of God. Now, if, if you're new and you're kind of checking out this Jesus thing, then I want to encourage you, you, can, you don't have to partake, you can, can observe what's taking place here. But we have to remember, for those of us that are disciples of Jesus, that the, it seems that the religious leaders never pause to assess themselves, never pause to confess their sin. They didn't recognize it. And so I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on Matthew 23 and to, to take some time to assess the warning that Jesus gives and how does that impact our life? And if you need to spend some time confessing, I want to encourage you to do that right now. In Matthew 26, we see that Jesus gathers with his 12. And it says this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink. Father, we thank you 
that you are a savior who gives us warning. And it's in that warning that it leads us to our need for your grace and your mercy and the love that you brought on the cross and the empty tomb. And so, Father, I pray that we that are gathered today would be disciples that want to know your truth, that we would seek your truth. And out of gratitude, we would live in obedience to you. And I confess that often I am like the Pharisees. And I ask, Lord, that you would help me and help my friends here to see who you are and how you want to lead us as a community of believers to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come. We thank you for this table and the remembrance that is gathered there. We love you. It's your name I pray. Amen. We respond to the message and to communion with the song, The Lord is My Salvation. That's what we testify this morning. Let's stand. reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea and I am safe on the solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls his strength will help me scale these walls I'll see the dawn of the rising sun The Lord is my salvation Who is like the Lord our God Strong to save my salvation my hope is hidden in the Lord he flowers each promise of his word when winter fades I know spring will come the Lord is my salvation in times of waiting, times of need, when I know lost, when I am weak, I know His grace will renew these days. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the 
just take moments to encourage one another, uh, encourage one another in the faith and what God is doing in each of your lives. May you hear this benediction over you. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Go in his grace today. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. Have a great week.